Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Friends, we're in a worship series for the season of Advent and moving on through Christmas and into a little bit of Epiphany called Home for the Holy Days. And we're taking that idea of home kind of literally, thinking about the geography of Jesus' own life as he moves around through a part of the world that is in the news today, like actually today, and the day before and the day before that. A geography which to us in this season um, runs the risk of feeling like mostly symbolic, you know? Like we're not necessarily thinking of actual coordinates on the actual globe, but the places we're talking about over these weeks are as real now as they were then. And so we have thought together about Jesus's uh, time in Bethlehem and then last week in Egypt. And this Sunday, we're moving on to the Jordan River and the wilderness beyond. So I'm reading from Mark chapter one, starting in the very first verse of that gospel. And it goes like this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed... The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days tested by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
I know it's bad form to play favorites, I know. But come on, everybody knows I have one. I listen to them equally. I show fair respect for their best efforts. I laugh equitably at their jokes. I weep even-handedly with their pathos. I pay objective attention to the aspects of their strange personalities that I don't understand. But still, still, there is no denying that there's one I just love more. Yes, church, I will admit it. The gospel of Mark is the one for me. Are you relieved? <laughs> it's because Mark moves fast, I think. Because he does not linger in places that don't advance the plot. To me, it shows a lot of trust in his readers that we will comprende his point without a bunch of hand-holding. And what can I say? I just feel some kinship with a writer in a rush, barreling headlong toward a conclusion, handing in a final first draft still hot off the press. That is how Mark reads to me, closer to lickety-split journalism than artful novella. However much I appreciate the fast pace of this gospel, though, it is a problem at this time every third year. It's every time in the Revised Common Lectionary, our schedule of readings, that Mark takes center stage in the Advent season leading up to Christmas. And you know why, right? It's because you've noticed tonight that Mark elides right through Jesus' traditional origin story. There is no Bethlehem barn. There is no escape to Egypt. There are no wise men or shepherds or donkeys or dreams. Maybe Mark peered into the 21st century and knew how distracted we would be by pageantry and presence. How we could turn the bloody birth into a gleaming crash, imagining a silent night under the glow of starlight. A serene young mother holding a beatific newborn. No crying he makes. No poops he makes. He never has trouble latching on. So Mark just skips that part and jumps right into a different birth story. Because make no mistake, Mark is interested in Jesus' birth, just not the birth we're usually celebrating this time of year. <laughs> Imagine if Mark were in charge of the annual children's nativity pageant. There would be no woolly lambs, no shepherds in their parents' bathrobes, no suspiciously young wise men carrying tinfoil-wrapped shoeboxes full of make-believe treasure. Just a handful of characters, actually. You would need one kid with a big voice and a high tolerance for scratchy costuming including a scraggly beard and a woolly sheath tied together with a leather lanyard to play John the Baptizer. And that kid would need to practice their crazy eyes and their outside voice to carry it off. And, and they would need to be persuaded to drop the character when not on stage to avoid scaring the little kids and the old folks. You would need a full-grown Jesus, perhaps growing a beard of his own, not the latest born baby in the congregation. This would be a good role for somebody nonverbal, actually, as he has no lines in this play. And after he walks on stage of his own volition, he mostly just gets pushed from one place to the other by the other characters. 
you would need some crowds, some people clamoring generally for baptism in the river constructed from, I'd say, mud-colored fabric, maybe some burlap. It wouldn't take much direction for these crowds. They really would just need to kind of mill around on the stage on this riverbank waiting their turn while John pauses for a locust and honey break played to great comic effect. And then there would be the special non-human roles for this pageant. You'd need somebody mechanically inclined to work the bird puppet, you know, to make it descend gently onto Jesus's head at just the right moment, and then a minute later to beat Jesus about the head and shoulders with wings and talons and beak, driving him from the river's mud out to the desert's relentless sun, not inviting or leading or nudging him, Mark says, but driving him out the same way he will soon drive demons out of afflicted sufferers. And then you'd want somebody who really doesn't want to appear on the live stream to be the voice, capital V, reading their only line right into a hidden microphone backstage. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am so pleased. With whom I am so pleased would cue the bird, less dove now than raptor, to drive silent Jesus off stage. And then, of course, for scene two, which really looks a lot like scene one, but the river and the crowds are gone. You need just one more, an enemy, an accuser, uh, Satan, someone, something, waiting to meet him out there waiting for his vulnerability to peak with hunger, hoping to pierce his courage and stamina with doubt and fear. Like Jesus, the enemy has no lines in this play, Mark has written. He just creeps around, trying to force eye contact with Jesus, who keeps trying so hard not to look at him. Right at the very end, Mark throws in some good roles for the toddler extras. There are wild beasts, he says, out there with Jesus. I don't know, hyenas, coyotes, wolves. And there are angels. Here's a point of connection with the traditional pageant. Angels, they're not singing announcements over fields, but they are ready to help him out when the time of testing is over, showering the bedraggled, exhausted, filthy, emaciated Jesus with hugs and kisses from on high. This, Mark says, this is how Jesus becomes Jesus. The origin story of the one who will very, very quickly, before we are halfway through chapter one in Mark's gospel, announce that the reign of God is right here, right now, and here's how things are going to go when God gets everything God wants. He will come out of that desert and blaze through Galilee, bringing health and wholeness to those who need it most royally pissing off those whose own status is bound to the status quo. But before any of that can happen, Mark says, he's got to be born. He's got to be born not as a baby in Bethlehem, but as a grown-ass adult imbued with the spirit of the living God. 
He's got to emerge, not from the birth canal of his human mother, but from the waters of Mother Earth, the muddy Jordan River. He's got to have a progenitor, neither Mary nor Joseph of Nazareth, but the voice from the heavens intoning, my son, my beloved, I am so proud of you. The beginning, Mark says, right at the top, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is how it starts. Now, probably you know that not all Christians practice baptism the same way. In this very room, including all of you at home, there are as many different stories of the hows and whys of baptism as there are people, trust me. But broadly speaking, some of us were baptized as infants before we could walk or talk or think a thought. And some of us were baptized as kids, adolescents, even as adults, at whatever point we felt invited and competent and safe enough to decide that for ourselves. At Galileo Church, in case you didn't know, as in the denomination to which we belong, the capital D Disciples of Christ, we practice what is commonly called believer's baptism. That is the kind where you make your own decision and you can walk yourself to the water's edge. But, and, we receive every baptized person's baptism, whether you were sprinkled, dabbed, or dunked, whether you remember it or not, because we believe that whatever is happening in baptism, besides you getting wet, it's God doing it. And who are we to say that God ever needs a do-over? I will tell you, though, that whenever I remember again Jesus' own baptism, especially from Mark's gospel, where it serves as his nativity, his origin story, his birth, I remember that there's something to be gained from baptizing a baby who cannot consent and does not understand The baptism of infants relieves the one being baptized of any illusion that they are meant to do it right, that they are meant to understand what they're doing, what is happening to them, what it will mean for the rest of their lives. Of course they don't. They can't. They're a baby, which means if you are baptized as a baby, You spend the rest of your life growing into the baptism you were given. You spend every new season of your maturity learning what that baptism will cost you and what it will grant you and what it will show you about the world that you would not have seen otherwise. You move through the world as a baptized person who is of necessity learning every day what it means to be baptized, to be named and accepted and adored by the voice, to be driven out into hard places by the spirit bird, to be tested seriously by your enemy, to be sustained and cared for by God's own attendance. You never imagine, if you were baptized as a baby, that you should have already figured it out. 
<laughs> you were a baby when it happened, and so you are learning every day what it means. Now, I'm not announcing a change in baptismal practice here at Galileo Church because I also think, well, because that's above my pay grade for real, but because I also think that there's something amazing about following Jesus' example, about waking up one day and saying to yourself, Self, today is the day I say yes to whatever God is going to do with me. About walking to the river and taking your shoes off and letting yourself be shoved into the earth's womb and pulled out again into the light of a new day. There is something glorious about saying a conscious yes to the possibility of whatever comes next after God claims you as God's beloved with whom God is so pleased, even if the very next thing leaves talon scratches across your face. It's just that lots of Believers' baptism, Christians imagine that baptism is or ought to be or should have been a peak moment on the graph of their spiritual life. A perfect moment when you're really feeling God's presence and power, when you've reached a deep understanding of the mystery of faith, when your life is working and you feel yourself in alignment with God's purposes in this world. You get baptized when you've got it mostly figured out. Or so we imagine. But Mark and the infant baptizers offer a corrective to that idea. What if, what if the graph begins with baptism? With our meek, monosyllabic yes to God, with our trudge to the muddy bank, perhaps swept along by the excitement of the crowd, baptism not as a spiritual peak, but as a spiritual launch into the rest of your life, your purpose becoming clearer and clearer the longer you travel the road it has set you on. The question then, as this really hard year barrels to a close and we dare to hope against hope for better seasons to come in the life of this world God still loves, the question is, where will your baptism take you next? Having been launched into this life of going where the Spirit leads you, of wearing God's parental love and approval like every day's dripping baptismal garments, of facing brutal tests in the dry deserts of despair, where will your baptism take you next? May we each get lots of chances to find out. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves.
To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.